How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora, we all come from somewhere else. Seek us out and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Here on the Plastic Podcasts, I get the privilege of talking to old friends and making new ones. It's a bit of both with Paul Moriarty. We've only properly met the once, but I feel like I've known him most of my life. However, that's probably down to the fact he's been in the corner of my living room for so long. Whether it's on Ashes to Ashes, Life on Mars, A Touch of Frost, Pride and Prejudice, or indeed, most notably, as George Palmer on EastEnders. In the theatre, he's worked with writers David Hare, Tony Harrison, Carol Churchill and Alan Bennett, as well as directors Peter Brook, Trevor Nunn, Peter Hall and Lindsay Anderson. And it all started by being sent to boarding school to improve his voice by a rich godfather. However, still, Wikipedia insists that he is best known for a Cockney accent. That's the genius of Wikipedia, isn't it? Oh, he was an EastEnders, so he's known for his Cockney What about my time at the Royal Shakespeare oh, Company? What about your time at the Royal Shakespeare yeah, Company? Yeah, what I mean, about my time at the Royal Shakespeare Company? But that wasn't always the case. I mean, you're quite known for a variety of voices, aren't you? Well, it was rather odd because I was brought up or dragged up in County Kilburn with Irish parents. And uh, I had a rich father who didn't have any children. And he kind of semi-adopted me and said, uh, I should be sent away to learn how to speak proper English. And so I was uh, sent to Something Abbots, which is a village of something just along the coast here, to learn how to speak proper. Uh, And I felt fairly constrained by it all, but I managed to pull it off because you thought, if you're talking like that at a sort of... uh, boarding school you're going to be uh, ribbed mercilessly so I, I learnt to speak reasonable English quite quickly uh, and then I went up to Manchester University and I felt free again because everybody was you know oh, all right well how are you doing and all that and I slipped into that to such an extent that when uh, they wanted someone to play God in Tony Harrison's Mysteries at the National Theatre I got a call from him. They said, can you get down here this afternoon and audition? I said, well, I can't read the Bible that quickly. And they said, no, no, it's just that Tony Harrison says God has to come from Yorkshire. So get an atlas out and find a little obscure village in Yorkshire and say, that's where you come from. Hello, Tony, old lad. And he's an incredibly nice man. <laughs> but every time I used to see him at the National, I'd be talking to somebody and saying, oh, what are you having? For-? Oh, there's Tony. Hello, Tony. Hey, old lad. <laughs> Is he all right? Uh, to convince him that I really was from Yorkshire. <laughs> so, yes, accents in this country. I think my uh, my godfather was probably right. It's uh, You don't need to be that intelligent. You just need to be able to speak properly so that the doors of the clubs open to you. Are you a natural mimic? No, I, don't, I, I think uh, not being very bright. I was one of those boys who uh, fooled around a bit at school and... Uh, that's probably another protective thing, isn't it? A lot of people say that if you can make people laugh, you're kind of protected and inviolate because people like you. So, yeah, I'd probably mimic teachers and things like many other boys did, but uh, didn't necessarily mean because you're a mimic that you're going to become an actor. Or if you're not a mimic, I mean, the, the best way to make money, really, is to be like Michael Caine and talk like that for the whole of your life. Or Sean Connery to be in films, American films, and just speak like that. I'm not changing my accent. You know, to be identified as one particular thing. I met a top top casting woman years ago, and when I was almost first starting, she said, uh, your trouble is really is that you're too versatile. You don't sort of fit into a particular slot. So that when we're looking for somebody, we know immediately to go for somebody. And then four or five actors down the line, if we're stuck, we'll say, well, you know, Paul could do it. So why don't we get him? But he's not really the one we want. Does, is that a kind of um, summary of your life as well? Do you feel that you never really fitted? Uh, yes, I do. And I, it's very odd that I often don't feel that I fit as an actor. Quite often in a room full of actors, as you, you sometimes get, I remember at the National, we were going to do a whole lot of plays from the studio theatre and they had a big launch party for it. The room was full of actors. And one of the directors, Peter Gill, noticed that I was about to pass out because I just felt that, what are you doing now and all that? I just wasn't part of it. So my subterfuge of learning how to speak correctly and what have you doesn't really go that deep. I think I'm still a Kilburn lad underneath it all. That's a Kilburn lad who started off with a strong Irish accent, yes? 
well, I was seven when I was sent away, so it was fairly strong, yeah. Kilburn Irish, yeah, sort of slightly Cockney, slightly Irish, yeah. But my parents had come from Tralee, Kerry, you know, where they talk like that, they're sort of um, agricultural kind of farming people, and they're usually the butt of many jokes in Ireland. But when we came over to London, it, it turned into more of a Dublin kind of accent. But by the time I was seven, I picked up the idea of uh, speak proper quite quickly as a defensive mechanism. And uh, I lost my Irish accent. My father lost his too. He joined the Merchant Navy during the war and quickly thought to be accepted again by everybody, the, the people on ship, that he should speak with a sort of English accent, uh, which he did for his whole life. Well, let's go, let's go back to your parents. Your parents, you say, both came from Tralee. Um, yeah. But I understand they met in this country. Yes, like uh, like most Irish people, they heard a fight was going on in England, so they joined before the war, you know. Uh, I have no idea why my mother came over here. The, um, her father, which I, did, I didn't find this out until I was in my late 30s when we were at a baptism or something. She said, you see that woman over there? That's your granddad's other daughter. And they'd never been mentioned before. So I think that something had happened that he'd left the home, which, you know, in Ireland in those days, 1936 or whatever, was quite a thing to do and gone off with another woman. And my mother came over here where there were aunts and people there. Various uncles had moved to England to get jobs. But the story by my father is that uh, he had a younger brother who went to um, Christian Brothers School and uh, he heard that one of the Christian brothers was behaving rather badly, as Christian brothers tended to do sometimes. And he went up to the school and laid this man out. Bang! Just hit him. And that meant he and all his brothers had to leave the village or leave Tralee. Right. So they were both kind of, one way or another, kind of exiled from Tralee. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, his brother joined the Royal Navy, Uncle Tom, who was a light boxing weight champion and subsequently became a policeman and seemed to put that skill to good use up in Corby, Steel Town, which used to get very rough on a Friday. And uh, my Uncle John went to Korea. My Uncle Pierce joined the army and actually came back with a German bride, which um, ostracized him for a bit. You think we were outside? Yeah, I mean, she's a beautiful woman, looked a bit like Ingrid Bergman, and, uh, but it never really assimilated into the family properly. We used to have big do's on Boxing Day when all the Irish uh, diaspora from Kilburn would come up with their bottles and things and sing Irish rebel songs and dance and Auntie Catherine, a very frail lady, used to read the teacups, would recite a poem and everybody would be quiet while she recited the poem. And then murder and mayhem would break out again. Us kids used to hide under the table and just see these feet stomping past us and everything getting more and more chaotic. It's wonderful. <laughs> happy memories of Kilburn then? Very happy memories of Kilburn. The, um, the prefab we had had a garden and uh, we had lovely neighbours, although they were fairly English, so we did feel outside that. Uh, I went to a, a convent school up in Wilston Green. Um, God, what was it? Mary and Joseph school. And the nuns actually were incredibly kind to us all. Uh, and then, then I was, uh, when my, this godfather came along and said I had to learn how to speak properly, uh, they found out that the school I was going to was a Protestant school and I was hauled up in front of the class and this nun who'd been wonderful to me and uh, this boy is going to a Protestant school, take a good look at him. And I had no idea what was going on. So, you know, we used to have to go to confession at the age of six and you'd all be sitting there thinking, oh God, I've got to think of something that I've done wrong that will impress him, but I can't think of anything. That's a Dave Allen sketch, if I remember. It's, um, it's yes, he says, you're seven years old and you're trying to think desperately of things oh. to confess. I saw Mary Maguire's knickers. <laughs> and I was wearing them. Uh, hey! Yeah, observational comedy. That's, uh, that, and it's absolutely true. You would be, uh, go and see this voice behind this curtain, you know, and you're 
four or five years old. It was, it was really spooky. Uh, Catholic Church was quite spooky. You know, you're taking the, the thing at your first uh, Holy Communion, the piece of bread that's meant to be the body of Christ. Uh, yeah, you didn't really know what was going on, but you were doing it because everybody else had to do it. I mean, good luck to anybody who has belief. It's a very comforting thing, I imagine, whether you're Muslim or Jewish or whatever it might be, Sikh, Buddhist, to have something to believe in is wonderful. Uh, I happen to believe in the beauty and wonderment of life instead of having a Tory government, I think. <laughs> There's so much going on in the world and uh, it's just a mystery, but if people want to believe that, then that's fine. As long as, you know, I was working in uh, Northern Ireland doing a play only about four or five years ago, and the landlady said, uh, I said, you know, is there anywhere I shouldn't really go? And she said, oh, no, that's all over. There's no more of that here. But I wouldn't go to any of the pubs on that side of the bridge. I said, I thought you said it was all over. Uh, well, it is, but I wouldn't go. And then when you go round uh, in the black taxi rides, which take you to see all the murals and what have you, you realise how it will never end. School kids are going past these murals and martyrs and saints and candles and God knows what. Uh, it's always going to be underneath there. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Seek us out at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Paul Moriarty's parents may have both come from Tralee, but they met in England. In this section, I get to talk to him about his family, and in particular, his grandfather. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to rein this across to um, your, your parents and um, coming into England during the war, because, oh, yes, I get around about the time that, um, that war broke out, which must have been... Yeah, sure. I don't know if they talked about... It as, as, as a family and so forth, but it must have been odd to a certain extent coming across from Ireland, which decided that it was going to be a neutral country uh, in, in, in the Second World War and fighting for, well, the English. Uh, yeah, well, my grandfather was uh, in the IRA during the, you know, 1917 or what, and he used to say, oh, Tommy, Tommy was a good man, right? you'd have a drink with Tommy, but the black and tans, are, and they really hated the way the black and tans treated the country, and actually that was good for the rebels because it showed England in a very bad light, as did when they martyred the people from the post office uh, rebellion. A lot of people in Dublin didn't want to split from England, they were quite happy, but when they started hanging and shooting people, uh, of course there was great vehemence against the British government, but as you say, how odd to come over here and uh, join the Merchant Navy, in my father's case, uh, and the Royal Navy in his brother's case. Did that cause any friction? My grandfather, of course, was, um, he, mo he moved over here and he couldn't understand eventually why the British government found out that he was getting a, a, gov a pension from De Valera in Ireland and another pension from the British government. And he said, they've stopped me pension. And I said, well, you've been living here for about 40 years now, Pop. That's not right, it's not right. <laughs> so, yeah. He uh, he found it, it, it difficult, but my my father wasn't uh, into all that. Nor was my mother. Uh, you know the uh, the divides, and they used, they used to say even the Catholics are mad up north. Uh, and none of our family ever went to Northern Ireland. I was the first one, and I was in my late fifties when I got a job in Belfast. First member of the whole family to ever set foot in the dangerous waters of Northern Ireland. Wow! And yet you were the yeah. kid from the Protestant school. How did you move into, into acting? Oddly enough, the, the nuns used to put on a school play and uh, I was always chosen to be either the fox in Red Riding Hood or the leader of the shepherds in the nativity play or whatever. So I got a slight hankering for it then. And at the boarding school, there was a man called Mr. Bell, Ding Dong Bell, and he insisted on people reading poetry out loud in class. And I, I really enjoyed it. I, I felt good you know often won the form prize or or whatever and then i went to a university college school in hampstead um, day public school uh which my father was now paying the fees and uh, it was quite a struggle but uh, i had a one of those teachers one of those dreadful teachers mr mcgregor who uh got us again to speak out loud in class and uh 
put me in the school play and I get I'm, I'm getting a stone in that's it better uh, so yeah I picked it up there and I, I didn't I wasn't very uh, academic so I was going up to Manchester to do general arts you know which is a bit of everything and when I got there, there was this old church in the corner and it had drama written above it. And I went in and I said, I, I didn't know you could do drama at university. They said, oh yeah. And they said, as a matter of fact, two, uh, two students haven't turned up this year. Do you want to apply? And I said, yeah, all right. <laughs> I said, well, the prof's not busy at the moment. Do you want to go in and see it? And I suppose, not thinking about it, is one of the best ways to do things. I went in and he said that, Oh, what do you know about restoration comedy? And I said, well, I have, I have no idea, sir, but um, I'm very willing to learn about it. And he got me to do, uh, I think it was once more, until I breached, dear friends, once more. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, uh, I like your cheek. He said, and um, we have got a spare place, so why don't you join? And that was me done for. I phoned up my mum and dad, and uh, my dad said, oh, Christ, you're going to be one of those people wandering around in tights pretending to be a tree. And I said, well, you know, it's a BA honours degree as opposed to the general arts one, so it's a step up. Yeah, but it's not going to lead anywhere, is it? <laughs> uh, you'll be able to ask for the dole in a rotund terms, but that's about it for you, isn't it? And uh, actually, after that, they came to see every single play I was in. And it was just, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but it, whether I was in Bolton or Manchester or Liverpool, Coventry, uh, Stratford, they they would come, drive up and come and see it. Wonderful, wonderful support. So we talked about that that thing about Cy being a, a working class actor and being in that. Because what what kind of era were we talking here? The the sixties. Oh yeah, sixties. Um, some actors are brilliant. Oh, do you remember in seventy eight when we were in? I can never remember that, but it was the late sixties, about nineteen sixty six. I think I left university. So so that whole but that, but that 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 whole thing of. You're talking to your parents, and it's 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 there's a certain resistance to, as as a working class family to this notion of sort of well, you'll not get anywhere. This isn't a job. This isn't a, a career. This isn't a, a a craft. When are you going to get a proper job, son? That's the, that's the the thing that people still say. Did you ever want a proper job? Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, Manchester was liberating vocally for me. Uh, because I didn't have to speak like that. And of course, I, I never went to Rado and mixed with a lot of people who did speak like that and were trained to speak like that. Um, we used to put on plays every Monday in a little studio workshop. Different people would write plays and they'd ask you if you want to be in it. And then uh, one of the tutors said, during the summer, all the theatres in Manchester closed down because people are on holiday and it's not sustainable. So we'll start our own theatre, uh, university theatre, and uh, we put on plays. So we learn by doing it rather than by being taught how to pick up a phone in an interesting way and put it down and do all that kind of thing. So yeah, there were a lot of us about too, a lot of, uh, lot of working class boys and women. Women actually were mainly upper class, I hadn't thought of that until just now. <laughs> They were sustained by uh, fairly wealthy parents, whereas, you know, maybe us, it was like, I don't want to be a boxer to get out of this, so I'll become an actor. But you also mentioned a little earlier that your father's accent changed as well, didn't it? He decided very early on that the whole parochial thing of Ireland and, people, you know, women dressed in black and all this kind of caper, it wasn't for him. I think maybe he was 18 when he was in the Royal Navy. And he'd been to Rio de Janeiro, uh, New York. So we had lots of uh, jazz records by uh, black singers and musicians in our house. Nat King Cole was a particular favourite of my mother's. So he was already uh, well, part of the a man of the world in many aspects, if you like. And, and as a salesman, he went up north uh, all over the place. So he didn't feel like he was, uh, maybe it's because I'm a Londoner kind of thing. Uh, I think he thought he was his own man and he didn't need the church and he didn't need the Irish kind of, oh my God, and all the doom and gloom. It, if he went to a funeral, there used to be professional mourners, you know, they used to, all these old ladies used to turn up at the back with their, their robes, oh my God, I'm sure he was a lovely man. And my dad used to say, oh, I know, but there's uh, people dying today that never died before, you know. 
really? Oh, <laughs> but, but my my grandfather was um, laid in state in Quex Road with the tricolor, with the Irish flag on his coffin because he'd been part of the Republican army. And he was uh, taken uh, in the hearse uh, through Kilburn High Road and hardly anybody took any notice because the... Uh, the IRA had paraded through Kilburn High Road and used to collect money down there with the berets and the black glasses and what have you. But as we turned a corner to go up to uh, Kensal Rise Crematory, there were two black guys on the corner and they both stopped and gave the fist as we went past. And I, I suddenly realized, yeah, this funny old man was actually a freedom fighter at one time. But when we got to the grave, there was a young priest there and he refused to bury him with the flag on the coffin. And there were these guys who actually were in trench coats and trilby hats, loomed out of the mist, and struggled with the priest with his flag, and in the end gave up and said, you know, Michael Hurley had lost his life so that Ireland may be free and we can hang our heads up high. And my mum and dad, of course, were looking at the ground in great embarrassment. And these guys came back to the house and sat separately in the kitchen drinking uh, their Jameson while the rest of the mourners went into the living room and they just sat there and talked about the old time. And I, I regret there's huge swathes of history that, whether consciously or not, they didn't talk about. They didn't really, they sang the songs and what have you and talked about the filth of the black and tans and De Valera and Collins. I had a, they weren't real uncles, but Uncle Paddy, and my grandfather didn't speak because they were on opposite sides of the Civil War. Uh, my grandfather was De Valera and uh, the other man was Collins. And they both lived in Kilburn. They both attended weddings and funerals and baptisms, and they never spoke to each other for the whole of their lives. So they brought that with them, and that was what my father didn't want to do. He said, it's a whole new life. Uh, the war is over. Ireland is over. And let's face things and get on with it. Although he, he loved going back. As a kid, we were always going back to Ireland. Uh, and part of me, I just feel Irish. I can't help it. My son feels the same. I'm going to carry on a little bit on, along this line. By the time you're growing up, you're, you're in, the, in, the, in the late 60s and you start your acting career and you go across to Coventry and you're, you're working in, in Manchester and Liverpool and, 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 and around the North and the Midlands and so forth. And then all of a sudden, here comes the early 70s and the, and the bombing campaign starts. Yeah. And, yeah. and obviously, given your, your, your family background, that must be, I, I'm presuming that was quite a divisive time. From my grandfather, sort of through the family, they wanted nothing to do with targeting civilians. He said he was fighting the British Army, which he which he was, and the other lot had joined the British forces. Uh, so this idea of um, setting bombs off where there might be uh, children and goodness knows who around, although most of the bombs were set off late at night outside Selfridges and what have you. But I I came down once I'd been working in Manchester. And I was going to be met by my friend, Sean Barrett. And I couldn't see him anywhere. And I was phoning him. We didn't have mobile phones. And I saw all these people rushing past. And two of them were nuns. <laughs> and somebody said, get out of the station. And I suddenly realized this was serious. I got out through the front door. I saw Sean. So I said, Sean, which was not the wisest thing to shout out. And the the army people were there, and suddenly this crumph went off. It wasn't like bang, it was crumph, like an implosion. And the only injury was a Chinese man who'd been in the uh, takeaway opposite where the phone booth was, actually. And the bomb had gone off near there, and the glass had shattered, and he was killed because he didn't know what was going on. He just stayed behind. Uh, but... But yeah, I was I was nearly killed by the IRA bombs in those times, and we heard them going off in in Kilby. Could hear them boom at night, and thinking, this is this is daft. You know, why, if they want to do it, why don't they bomb the railway or something and bring London to a standstill? Uh, what what are they actually doing? Just nibbling. And of course, when they bombed the Nat West, that's when the British really got round the table and started talking to them. 
but they should have done that. If they were doing a war, they should have done that much, uh, much earlier. But we, none of our family, although they'd been brought up with the black and tans and seen terrible atrocities in Ireland, a lot of them, living around the Cork area and Kerry, uh, none of them uh, favoured bombing of civilians. Or they saw it, it wasn't actually true, because a lot of uh, IRA supporters did come south and were sending money, and they did collect in Kilburn High Road. And uh, if you've got a bloke in a berry and <laughs> acting saying, give money to the cause, uh, you weren't like to say, no, piss off. Uh, so, yeah, they were, but they did, I think, see it as something that was coming from Northern Ireland. Rather, they felt that they'd had their battle, they'd won independence, and now it was uh, Northern Ireland's turn, which was a strange way of thinking, but I think that's what was going on. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. This is the section where I ask one of my guests to raise up on the plastic pedestal a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance. This week, it's Bridget Whelan, and she starts off with a small dilemma. I had it all sorted out, and I had it very clear in my head who I was going to choose. And then my youngest son, I was just talking, telling him about it, and he said, no, there's, one, there's only one choice. There's, oh, you know, what are you even thinking about it for? It has to be Shane McGowan. He was the, he is the sounderless. And it would be a sort of connection with my sons because they would appreciate that he, they, they, he belongs to them and he belongs to me and he belongs to London Irish. When did you first hear the Pogues? I was going out with my husband, Mike, and he he was very into music and i lived in islington and um he took me along to a pub hope uh, uh, hope and anchor in islington and because it was an irish band playing called pogue mahone and we went there and he was so pleased with the night and everything else and he, and afterwards we saw them before they changed the name and kate reardon um was the drummer on it um they were brilliant. So when that would have been about 82, I'm guessing, something like that. So of course, yeah, they, and, and their sound is, they, they captured what it meant to be Irish because, the, you, know, we, you know, using the songs that we grew up with and the, the rhythms and the, we grew up and to translate it into that kind of new wave music, which was absolutely hit it on the nail. Yeah, so it is, has to be Shane McGowan. My other choice was going to be Elvis Costello, but um, I think Shane beats. There's a crossover with them as well, isn't there? Yes, uh, Elvis Costello produced the, that great album. There's um, um, Ron Sodomy and the Lash. Elvis Costello's a fantastic um, musician and, and a very important contribution to, to music in the latter part of the 20th century, 21st century. Um, and there's a connection with him um, is that my husband um, was part of his very first, I think, well, I think I'm not sure if it was his first band, but it was the band he had before it became famous. However, once my youngest son nominated Shane McGowan, I knew it had to be him. What's the quality that just edges it? You know, Murphy's, right, Murphy's have got an advert. We used to have an advert for their um, stout saying, it's a pint of us. Shane Gowan's music, uh, the Pogues. It's the music of us. That will do very nicely. Bridget Whelan there. Now back to Paul Moriarty. And in this section, we get to do what all actors love to do and talk about his career. And we talk about how it relates back to his growing up in County Kilburn. So going around with your career, uh, it's like we're going back to voices, I suppose, which is that like, you're a Yorkshire god. Yorkshire god, I am. Yorkshire god. That was, and, that was late on. And you, 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 were, you were in Corrie quite early on. Yes. Again, you were supposed to uh, come from Lancashire or whatever to be in Corrie in those days, but um, I was accepted. I crept in. Uh, a lot of them came from Oldham Rep, actually. The actors, I think Elsie Tan and uh, Doris Speed and people all came from uh, Oldham Rep. Mm -hmm. So they recruited locally. Uh, nowadays, of course, they casting people, they never go out. They don't see things. They just haul people in and say, oh, sit there, the director can't make it, um, just speak into the uh, thing like I'm doing now, and uh, we'll send it off to them. 
and then they sit around and discuss it. Uh, what's what 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 is it with the emphasis in this in this country on voices as character? Um, you know, there's the presumption that the the, the Birmingham accent is 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 is, is you know be slow that sort of thing, and that the uh, that the the Manchester accent is, is is sharp and harsh, or that the the Liverpool one's warmer, that the Scots is this or that, and that the characteristics are given to a a voice. Yeah, I think that's uh, quite often true. You don't get many Birmingham accents on adverts, voice hers, or any uh, plenty of Scottish ones, sort of integrity and support this bank and we'll support you. And yeah, that kind of thing is all right. But Birmingham, uh, the Midlands, is not. I, I was in a, um, a TV thing. It was called General Hospital. Oh, I and remember I was General a, Hospital. <laughs> Oh, you're older than you look. Uh, <laughs> That's difficult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was playing a postman, and I said, uh, it, it, it's, um, it's set in the Midlands, right? And they said, oh, yes, but we don't want any of those Midlands accents. We want to sell it to America places. And if you start talking like that, I can't really do it. <laughs> yeah, it'll just use Cockney. You're a working-class postman, so Cockney. Right. So that's not an accent we ever use. But we can use Cornwall and goodness knows what, because that's all son of the soil and it feels honest and warm, as you say, and unctuous. Uh, it's just strange. I don't know. This, as you say, this country, how many accents does it have around the place? Sussex used to have an accent. Yes. Uh, I, I, was in, I was in a play at the National with Damien Lewis, and I was playing the shipbuilder, and they brought a dialect coach in, the idea was you'll speak with a Sussex accent as a shipbuilder. And I can't really remember it now, but it was, you know, it was sort of slightly uh, rural and slightly uh, cockney as well. But, uh, and I went into Russell and uh, Damien Lewis said, why, why are you using that accent? I said, well, because they think it would differentiate between you people who live on top of the hill. And he said, oh, but your own accent is quite working class enough. <laughs> wow. Eaton lad, isn't he? Yes, he is an Eaton lad. He should be. <laughs> he was actually a very nice chap, as it sort of went. Your, all your family moved across, uh, didn't they? I mean, we were, we, were, we were saying it once again in the preamble that yeah. um, uh, 80% yeah. of, of Moriarty's in Ireland can be found in Kerry, yes? Uh, in, from Tralee, actually. From Tralee, uh, right. From the whole are. world, they can trace it back to Tralee. Yeah. From from what you were telling me, it, it, it's it's pretty much the entire family, your entire immediate family, that I upped up sticks and went to England. Yes, yes, even Auntie Debbie and people who were quite elderly by then, Auntie Eileen, uh, Auntie Kathleen, they were all in their sort of sixties when they came over. Well, they can't all have punched a Christian brother. So, um, why is it? Yeah, it was work mainly, I think. And after the troubles and goodness knows what, the economy was in a really bad state, and uh, they didn't particularly—I don't think. Well, Mr. Chamberlain didn't believe the war was imminent, and they came over and uh, set up in houses in County Kilburn. So, so we were still Irish in soul and feeling. Uh, my son and I still support Ireland against England, but then who doesn't at rugby? Uh, we go to the fiddlers in uh, Brighton <laughs> with all the other Irish people in there. But uh, yeah, we, it's odd. You're sort of part of something and not part of something. But it, that might be true for a lot of English people, you know, who moved up a class or whatever and think I'm part of this, but I'm not part of this. My roots are still somewhere else. But that's also like what you were saying, I, I suppose, to a certain extent about being a, uh, a, whether you were at school not feeling as though you quite fitted in or whether you know, as, as an actor, you don't quite fit in as an actor. No, I, I fit in. There are lots of um, working class actors, uh, get on with them fantastically well. They're, you're all learning all the time. You're reading different books. Uh, you're stuck together. You drink together quite inordinately in the old days. Uh, smoke, goodness knows what. It was a great sort of party ensemble atmosphere, which... Um, has gone a bit now. It's gone a bit corporate. You know, they closed the bar at the National Theatre to stop people drinking. They raided backstage to stop the stagehands drinking. Uh, Michael Gambon said, uh, well, actors are meant to uh, smoke cigarettes and piss down the stairs, aren't they, and behave badly. And they said, no, no, no more smoking in dressing rooms. Uh, and there's fear. 
less and less jobs, more and more you have to behave yourself and uh, do what you're told. Whereas before you'd have blazing rounds with directors. I don't want to, doesn't this mean that? And now they would just, it would be like farting in church or something. It's just not done. Um, but but uh, then I look at your your, your CV again, and I I, I see so, yeah, David Hare, Tony Harrison, Carol Churchill, Alan Bennett, Peter Brook, Trevor Nunn, Peter Hall, Lindsay Anderson. Were, were you daunted by? Are you? I mean, sorry, in retrospect, are you daunted by it, or were you daunted at the time? Not at all. In retrospect, I should have been maybe, and uh, I wasn't. None of us were. They were they were jobbing people as well. They were directors were on the floor, and if they said something and you disagreed, you disagree, and they would point out where you were wrong. Uh, Richard Eyre, you know, he was like a lower six captain of cricket or whatever. It's just a wonderful, one of the brilliant things a director can do is create a wonderful atmosphere where people feel relaxed. And all those people you mentioned, uh, and to have, right, we're always in awe of writers, I think, however important you were as an actor, uh, to have Carol Churchill in the room or watching a run through, or David Hare, uh, and David Story. Uh, was the one that Lindsay Anderson directed and I, I was standing outside the uh, the theatre one day we were rehearsing and I said to them, am I, am I sort of doing it the, the way you imagined? And he said, no, I wrote this in a little room and uh, I'd never met you so you're nothing like I imagined but uh, you seem to be doing all right. And, uh, and you know, he was an ex-rugby league player, David. And one of the actors, one of the acts said, oh, David, this is, you happen to be Irish. <laughs> said, oh, you know, I don't have to say all this, though. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's very overwritten. And uh, David's story stood up and said, perhaps you'd like to discuss that outside. <laughs> and the said, no, 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 it's fine. I'll say it. I'll say it. Good. I'm glad to hear it. And he sat down. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think you'd get that nowadays. And David Hare had a great sense of humour. I remember him coming in once and he said, oh, I've just read in The Guardian that people say Bob Dylan is more important than Keats. I mean, can you imagine? And everybody, all the actors, yeah, that's true. He's much more important than Keats, isn't he? <laughs> David Hare's, oh, you fucking barbarians, <laughs> walked out. But, you know, you were allowed to talk to people in those days. Uh, Alan Bennett was frightening too. I mean, you know, it's people of this ilk when they come into the rehearsal room. Uh, uh, directors, Nick Heitner, yeah, hello, Nick, good morning, and all that. Oh, Alan Bennett's coming today. Ooh, are we doing it right? Does he approve? This is his work that we are, you know, it's his baby, and have we dropped it? <laughs> so, yeah, there's great respect for writers. I mean, God, anybody who gets an award. It's really an award for the writer, I think. You know, if you can't if you can't do a good performance with a fantastic script behind you, it, it's the people in EastEnders and doctors, what have you, are churning out stuff uh, with sometimes little support behind them. You know, that's that's acting. That's really hard. Did EastEnders? I mean, sorry, the the visibility of of EastEnders, the fact that you're there, what two three times a week in in in, in, in people's living rooms, did that did that change things for you? It was extraordinary. I mean, I'd been a, a jobbing actor. Uh, I'd been in The Gentle Touch, which had a certain, um, well, I don't know, we had maybe 15 million viewers at, at one point and, and uh, other other things. But I did a short scene in EastEnders, my very first one, where I meet Peggy and I go out in the street. And she runs after me and said, oh, are you thinking of moving into the square then? And I said, well, judging by what I've seen so far, I might well do that. And that was the end of the scene. My wife and I were walking along the seafront in Brighton to meet some people for a meal. And as we walked along, it was like hissing. I said, what's that's really odd? And she said, it's people saying, EastEnders, 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 EastEnders. And it kind of been on the screen for 15 seconds. And I liked it. I enjoyed it. It's a fairly circular thing where I'm concerned, it must be admitted, but um, voices and this sort of thing, you kind of, you also get, kind of get cast on one side or the other on um, uh, of the law. Either there's like a, a lot of police work or there's a lot of gangster work going on. Yeah, it's the same thing, different. All wear suits and the gangsters wear slightly louder ties, that's all. But otherwise, uh, 
Otherwise, the performance is very much the same, isn't it? If you want to come outside, I want a word with you. <laughs> it's the same. But I love being a gentle touch, uh, driving around London in a car and uh, being in action, a policeman in action. And you felt like you had armour on. You were a copper. So you were in violet, which is, of course, I imagine, dangerous for real coppers. Now, something's just occurred to me. You're in the gentle touch, which if I remember correctly, is the early 80s, yes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With Jill Gascoigne, and I think it becomes Cat yeah. Size a little later and things like that. Yeah, she ditched us for Cat Size. We were going to become the Bill. Right. Bill Marlowe, who played uh, the chief inspector in The Gentle Touch, was also a writer, and he came up with this idea for the Bill. The wooden tops. The, with the wooden tops. <laughs> and uh, Jill Gascoigne, on the last night of, you know, you always have a party on the last night, and she was in the corner with somebody, he said, who's that? So oh, they're producers from Thames. I think she's um, she's sorting herself out with another series. Uh, she doesn't want to be surrounded by men anymore. She wants to have women. But um, it, it didn't work out, Cats. It, it looked bad from being the gentle touch, the intelligent, sensitive woman dealing with people's problems, to running around with a gun. I mean, just like this, you know, going back. But then... Fast forward a, 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 a bit further on, and you're in Ashes to Ashes, and um... yeah, I was in one of those as a copper again. As a copper, um, playing a copper in the eighties, um, where the where the central character is yes. a woman who's out of uh, was, was was that in any way at all weird? No, say jobbing actor, you get turn up. It's a day's work. Uh, you got a fair bit to learn. You get in. You don't know anybody. It's, uh, you think uh, you freeze that out. Again, you're not part of it, if you know what I mean. When you're in EastEnders, you are part of it. You know everybody, you know the crew, uh, you eat with them, you chat with them. They tell you, you know, sit down more slowly there because I'm keeping shot, whatever it might be. It's all people in it together. But when you just turn up for a, a day shooting, it's, uh, you have to freeze it out and say, I'm, I'm just here, hit my marks, say the words and get out. In that case, it, what, it, what strikes me is that like, you really enjoy the ensemble aspect of things, the, uh, the, the group aspect. From the word go, because when you're in rep, you know, there's um, maybe 15 actors, you're working, rehearsing every day, then finish it up as five, and then go on and do the play in the evening, go back in the morning at uh, ready for 10 o'clock, and uh, rehearse the next play. So you're working constantly with a group of people. They occasionally brought in sort of stars from London for sort of box office selling, but mainly it was the same people day after day. And of course, you went out drinking together, you played uh, Risk or Monopoly together in the evening to pass the time. It's hard to come down when you're working at that uh, speed and the adrenaline's going, you've just been in front of an audience. You don't really want to go home to an empty digs and uh, just didn't even have a telly in those days to listen to something boring person on Radio 4 or something doing book at bedtime. You wanted to keep going, and people did, till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning when you were younger, you could do all that. What strikes me then is that from what you were saying about, say, for example, uh, the family gatherings on Boxing Day and the number of aunts and uncles and uh, members of the family that are around in Kilburn and so forth, that you, you come from a, 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 a... You had a childhood that was quite a, quite a vibrant family, that it was a, a lot of activity. And very supportive because I think, you know, being a diaspora in County Kilburn, they did support each other. And if there was work going, they'd tell each other about this and that or a bargain going or whatever it might be, or a house needed some help. Oh, well, a couple of uncles would turn up and sort it out. So, yeah, it was very much an enlarged community family. And I guess maybe um, wanting to be inside something rather than outside something, which I felt when I was at uh, the boarding school, to be part of a, an ensemble was great. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora, we all come from somewhere else. Subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. In the last part of this interview with Paul Moriarty, we discussed Northern Ireland, working with Irish directors, passports and assimilation, all in less than nine minutes. You went across to Northern Ireland for the first time. Uh, first one in the family, yeah. First one in the family, and that was when you were in your 50s. Um, yeah. 
and I was thinking about your your um your image, as it were, is is, is very much as um uh it was certainly in, the, in 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 the more recent parts of your career. It's been like a, it's 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 been a southerner. It's been a, a cockney. It's been a, a gangster or a policeman and and so forth. Um, we were talking about the fact that you did you hadn't actually worked that much with let's say Irish directors or or writers. No, no, it's very odd. Uh, there was one, um, Alan Simpson, who's an Irish director, who was thrown out of Dublin because an actress exposed a breast by accident in a play, and he was told he would never work in Dublin again. This was disgraceful. And uh, he came over and uh, directed me a, a Russian play. There were three in it by Obutsov. And uh, he said, oh, God, it's terribly boring, all this. You know, the people don't, they must be drunk, these Russians. Talking like this, you know, so sentimental. Daddy's going to take you out tonight, <laughs> and the three of us went out with him, and we got pretty caline by the, the time we'd finished. We, we go back to the night lad now, and we'll have a, a few schnitzels, and we had some whiskey. And he said, "Right, uh, you run the play. Daddy's going to bed." <laughs> he went upstairs to bed, and the three of us ran the play, and suddenly. It was revelatory. He was right. So it just opened, instead of being English actors doing this, oh Russia, Mother Russia, oh Mother Russia, Mother Russia. It was you know it was visceral. It was uh, just brilliant. And he, he came at the Stratford to see me in a play, and he met me afterwards, and he gave me all these notes. He'd been taking notes all the way through, and he got on the he got on the train, and I went to wave him off, and he stuck his head out the window, and he said, Paul. I said, what, what? He said, don't tell the others. <laughs> Keep all these notes to yourself. That's a real sneaky Irish Dublin man. <laughs> so there was him. Uh, there was T.P. McKenna, Jim Norton, two Irish actors who were both in um, The Contractor. And I appeared at the Abbey in a J uh, Edward Bond play called Saved, which was banned when it was originally written because of the stoning of a baby in a park. and. I thought, at last, I'm at the Abbey, never mind the Royal Court and the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Royal National Theatre, I'm at the Abbey. And, uh, of course, it was all done in English. <laughs> I was playing an Englishman at the Abbey. It was actually the Peacock, the um, studio theatre attached to the Abbey. But I did, I did used to sneak up and just stand on the Abbey stage and think of all that history and whatever. And I, my parents were dead by then, but I'm sure they would have just been so thrilled except i had an aunt two aunts they call all these people aunts they're not really aunts but they're, they're called aunts who came to see the play and you know it's a stoning of the baby it's very visceral it's very hard opening of the second act after the stoning of the baby and the audience are kind of like that i'm ironing at the back of the stage and then my aunt's voice rings out no creases paul Go backstage and actors. Who the is that woman? I said, I'm sorry, it's she's a relative of mine. <laughs> I mean, be like that. No creases, Paul. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, I don't know why. You know, when you think George Bernard Shaw and uh, Oscar Wilde and all these people, but modern Irish writers seem to pass me by. It's um. It's a, it's a great pity. And, uh, and Irish actors and actresses hardly ever worked with them. I don't know why that should be. There's a thriving uh, stage and uh, TV now and filming over in Ireland. Maybe they don't need to come to England. I don't know. Strange. And Jim Norton, of course, went to America and has been in Frasier and lots of different things. So maybe they just don't need it. I don't know. I, don't, I can't think that English directors said, we don't want him, he's Irish. I'm an Irish citizen, by the way, and uh, so is my son, and my daughter is applying, and we all feel Irish. This brings me to my final question. It's the question I ask everybody, really, uh, at the end, and you started to answer that by saying that you're you're an Irish citizen, and the same goes for what, your, your, your sons and your daughter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was partly the Brexit. I should have done it years ago, when my mother had an Irish passport, but my father, again, had got rid of his and got a British passport. Really? 
yeah. Yeah, so she stayed with her Irish passport until she died, yeah. And what does being a member of the diaspora mean for you and for your family? Uh, I'm assimilated, you know, as I say, an actor, you walk into a group of people and you're part of it, whatever colour or designation they might be. You hardly ever meet somebody who is, you know, these bloody immigrants and all that. You don't get that kind of conversation. I've been very lucky and also... You get good scripts and it make you doing a play about the French Revolution. I read up about the French Revolution. Carol Churchill's written about um, Big Bang Dealing. Read books on Big Bang Dealing. Uh, David Hare's writing political plays. Write up political reminiscences, etc., etc. You're constantly learning, uh, and it's uh, just been a wonderful job. I I still feel Irish inside, but it's not an everyday kind of oh those. Although you know, watching Johnson and Gove and all these people, I take them as being quintessentially English. I'm sure there are plenty of Irish politicians who are just as corrupt and venal as they are and have no empathy for people who are not like them. But I don't want to be part of that. And I don't want to read the Daily Mail. And I don't want to uh, clean my calmness <laughs> Sunday. It's a, it's a tip. And uh, there's better things to be doing, I think. And Brighton is so cosmopolitan. You know, I ended up in Brighton because my wife got a job down here. So, yeah, let's go to Brighton. Uh, the kids and everybody, we just love it. People are good. People are decent. Even, even you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's like um, bad apples. <laughs> yeah. No, sincerely, this has been a, a lovely place to be with lovely community people again. It's great. And uh, But... Went back to Ireland last year. My son invited us over and hired a rented a house there. We went over. And it's just something makes you go, oh, the fields and the pouring rain and the turf and the and the pub. Hello, how are you? How's the deal? Oh, come on, sit down. Yeah, you're fine. Uh, it's just, it is a different race. I'm afraid we're all human beings, but we are very different. And I think uh, the country of origin. That's quite define a lot of us. Well, why not? Why shouldn't it be? Why shouldn't we be proud of our heritage? In that case, Paul Moriarty, thank you very much because it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, it's been a great pleasure for me. Ask an actor to talk about himself for this length of time. I know. What it's were been, the chances? It's been a joy. <laughs> and thank you for listening, as they say. You've been listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. I'm Doug Devaney, and my guest has been actor Paul Moriarty. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Bridget Whelan and music by Jack Devaney. Seek us out at www.plasticpodcasts.com, email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com, or indeed you can find us at the usual Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter places. The Plastic Podcasts has been supported using public funding by Arts Council England.